Welcome! Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We're so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for coffee and donuts at 9.30. We look forward to connecting with you. Good morning. We welcome in our online audience. Can we welcome them in and just say uh, we're glad they're joining us. And um, the high point of our worship comes after the message when we take communion together. So I hope you're all able to grab uh, uh, communion elements. If you didn't, feel free to get up and go out and grab those just outside the door. You at home, I want to give you plenty of time to take communion with us to get the elements. And uh, email us to let us know what you're using for elements uh, for your communion. You know, a worship service is a lengthy prayer, a focused time of in conversation with God. And today we just want to have a little bit more prayer and actually use Jesus' prayer book. We're going to pray a psalm. And I want us to pray Psalm 27 with two things in mind. First, around the world today, Christian churches are praying for the persecuted church. It's estimated that one out of every seven believers around the world lives in an environment where their life is under constant threat, their livelihood, everything they are, because they believe in Jesus, is threatened. So when we pray Psalm 27, grab onto a word or a phrase and just give that to the Lord and say, yes, Lord, do this, be this to the persecuted church today. And then secondly, you may have heard about this, Tuesday's a big day in our country, election day. So we're going to pray Psalm 27 uh, over the election and over our political life, uh, both as believers and as a church, but uh, also in our nation. So let's pray together Psalm 27. You're free to keep your eyes open, closed, uh, any posture you would want to take. This is a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to see him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his wings and set me high upon a rock. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn away your servant in anger, for you have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior, though my father and mother forsake me. The Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me 
spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. We say together, amen. Amen. I'm so excited today as we continue our journey through the Acts of the Apostles, this uh, unprecedented journey uh, where Jesus and his spirit have filled this group called Christians that, uh, that's called the church, which actually means the called out ones, and they are fulfilling the mission of Jesus that we read about in Acts chapter 1 when he said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all parts of the world. And today is a pivotal moment in this story uh, of our history, the history of the church, because it's the conversion of Saul. Saul, a young Jewish Pharisee who meets the risen Jesus and his life changes and everything in the world changes in this moment. This is big. Now, uh, first of all, I, I want to say this. Um, Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is his Greek name, and so when I say Saul or when I say Paul, it's the same guy, just so we're all on the same page. Second thing I want to say is I think this moment is really important when Saul is converted for two reasons. Historically, I mean, when you become a follower of Jesus, one of the thousand immediate gifts you get is a vision of what history means now. If Jesus is king and in control of all things, history means that there's a plan that's unfolding, and we get to be part of this plan. And history has a goal and an end when every knee, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. History is not just a spiral going nowhere. It's a straight line going somewhere, Jesus. And so when we become believers, we kind of get these new glasses we interpret history and everything going on around us. So if you and I were going out to coffee, which I hope we can do this sometime, and we sit down with our history Jesus glasses on, and I were to ask you, what in your opinion is the most significant, important moment in the history of the world? What would you say? I hear, yeah, probably most of us would say, that Passover time when Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross for our sins. And on the first day of the next week, and Christians have been meeting ever since on this day, he rose from the dead. I'm guessing there'd be pretty much agreement in the room on that that is the most significant moment in the history of the world. Okay, so I ask you the second question. What do you think is the second most important moment in the history of the world? Now the debate would get really lively. There would be lots of opinions, so I'm just going to put my cards on the table. I believe that the second most important moment in the history of the world is what we're talking about today, the conversion of Saul. Now, let me unpack that just for a moment. Let me, let's just sit in that for a minute. Saul. The only physical description we have of him outside of Scripture is that he was short, boom. He is bald, yes. He was, <laughs> he was bow-legged, 
and he had an eyebrow that was a solid, a unibrow that looked like a caterpillar. Oh, and a big nose. So this man, Saul, walked from city to city around the Mediterranean beaches, most of the time beaten and bruised from the last city. And he stood in front of whoever he could, in the synagogues or in the public square, and he would say, there's one God who has a son, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus came to live a life of obedience, which he gives to us, and he came to die for our sins and our place to forgive us. And then he rose from the dead. And I'm telling you, city after city, the world changed. Southeastern Europe was, Western Europe was never the same, and Western Asia was never the same. And from there, it went to the uttermost parts of the world. This is a significant moment. You and I are here today in these chairs because of that moment when Saul was converted. Think another, just for a moment, think about his letters. Most of his letters were written from a jail cell. In a, in a regular English Bible, his letters take about 80 pages, shorter than a dialogue of Plato, shorter than an, a treatise by Aristotle. But consider how many sermons and seminars and dissertations and copies have come over 2,000 years from the letters of Paul. It's just incredible. I was reading uh, Strength of Strength, a book by Arthur Brooks, who teaches at Harvard, uh, our fair city. And he, he writes in chapter 7 of Strength of Strength, who's your favorite and most impactful entrepreneur? And he mentions Henry Ford, the automobile, Steve Jobs, you know, Apple, Mac computers. I don't use them, so I don't actually know what they're called. It's an Apple or Mac? Sure. And... Arthur Brooks said, they're significant, no doubt about it. But he said, mine, and he's sharing this at Harvard, my favorite entrepreneur is the Apostle Paul. Because let's do this. Let's take Steve Jobs, for instance, today. 2,000 years into the future, will we still be talking about Steve Jobs? Maybe. 2,000 years after Paul's letter was written, millions of churches, billions of people are talking about the Apostle Paul and sharing his word. So I submit to you it's, a, it's an important moment in Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. Second thing I want to say, I think it's important theologically because when we talk about what happens here on the Damascus Road and this man Saul, we use this language of conversion, the conversion of Saul. Now, that's a very important theological term. Christianity runs by conversion. When you think of the power that it took to, by the third century, have the Roman Empire declare Christianity the official religion of the empire, that's power, that's influence, that's, that's has like divine help behind it. And that's the idea of conversion. We're talking about Christianity runs on conversions. Now, what is a conversion? I mean, in the English language, what are we talking about? Is it a new diet that we're going to try? Is it a subscription to a, a club? Is it, is it uh, a, a, a conviction that country music is no longer an oxymoron? What, what are you changing your mind about? 
Is it just a change of mind? Did Paul sit down and compare on the Damascus Road? Well, here's Judaism, here's Christianity, this new movement. Mm, I ch- that. I choose that. What, what does it mean to be converted? Something takes our life over. Someone gets inside of us. To be converted is to live in the power of another. Now, an outsider looks at that and looks at us and says, man, that's rather primitive. Really? You think God still comes down and he gets inside people like that and changes lives and turns things up? You think that happens? That's pretty primitive. Or some think it's just very narrow. What you're saying to me is that actually happens to a person and it only comes through Jesus. That's rather exclusive, don't you think? So there's, there's risk here in what we're talking about when we mean conversion on the outside, and I think on the inside of the church as well, because I think some of you are already sitting here now thinking, boy, I wonder where he's going to go with this. I wonder if I'm converted. Am I converted? How do I know if I'm converted? Do you think I should be converted? Well, I would say this. The language was initiated by Jesus himself. One time in Matthew 18, he was teaching to a crowd like this, and he said, unless you, here's the word, change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Another time, he was talking to a man who sat in the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, one of the most educated and wealthy and influential men of his time named Nicodemus. And he said to Nicodemus, unless you become, here it is, born again, Jesus coined that term, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So I think you should be born again. I think you should change. I think you should be converted. So let's talk about what it means to be conversion. What's a conversion? And we'll look at Paul's. And the second question, how do I know if I'm converted? So last time we talked about Paul was at the end of chapter 7. He was overseeing the stoning of Stephen. And uh, the people who, the witnesses who threw the stones, they laid their robes at Saul's feet. His entire life was consumed with stopping the Christian movement. In fact, the language when we come to chapter 9, when Tim read, that he was breathing out threats against the church. That's the idea of he was so physically exerting himself. I mean, that's, that's all he cared about was to stop the movement. A little later, uh, when uh, after the conversion and Saul comes to Jerusalem to be introduced to the Jerusalem Christians, the Jerusalem Christians said what probably you and I would have said after knowing what Saul used to do. Wait a minute, this guy is going to come and sit in this room? Do you know that, here's the word, havoc that he caused? If you look at that word havoc, this is what Paul was doing before he was converted. Havoc, it's used outside the Bible and other Greek literature to describe a wild boar running through a domicile. It's a pig in your living room. I mean, Paul was consumed with stopping the movement public enemy number one. He was the chief operative. 
He's on the road to Damascus because he had gotten extradition letters from the high priest because all the Christians except the apostles had fleed Jerusalem because of Stephen's martyrdom. So they're all leaving, and one of the next closest mega centers was Damascus in Syria, 135 miles north. So Paul gets letters from the high priest to go to Damascus and arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial for blasphemy because they're saying Jesus is Lord. He's risen from the dead. On the road, as you heard, Paul, a bright light comes down. And this light is like a flash bulb that doesn't stop, and it knocks him down. And from that brightness that he can no longer see now because he's blind, but he hears a voice, Saul, Saul. Now, when someone says your name twice, whether it's in Hebrew or English, what do you do? You listen. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who? I thought I was persecuting a group of rogue sect Jews who, who are blaspheming. Who, I'm persecuting you? Jesus, who, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you, and he says it again, whom you are persecuting. Now let's stop there for a couple of comments. One, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand me. I think that the circumstances that Paul, surround Paul's uh, conversion are not like what's to be copied every time someone's converted. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus has a different conversion story with different circumstances. I'm not saying that what's going to happen to you is a bright light from heaven comes and Jesus speaks to you out loud. Maybe, maybe, sometimes, that there's stories, but... All of us have different, sometimes conversion is sudden and dramatic. Sometimes conversion is a long process and very quiet. Even in the book of Acts, by the way, you see it last week when Paul preached, the Ethiopian eunuch, very calm, quiet conversion, the process. He'd been reading the scripture. So it can, I'm not talking about the circumstances of conversion. I'm talking about two elements that every conversion has. The first one Every conversion involves encountering the risen Jesus. That's what happens to Paul. You know, when this happens, I'm sure in Paul's mind, he's thinking of some, some Old Testament scripture because he had the Old Testament memorized as a Pharisee. And I'm sure he's thinking, oh man, like this happened to Moses when he saw the burning bush. Step back. This happened to Isaiah when he saw the, the, the Lord seated on his throne and all these seraphim angels were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah said, I'm ruined for seeing this. I'm unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is going to kill me. God's holiness, the God who is there, the burning purity, the holy other. Paul was familiar with this kind of encounter. What shocked him, and maybe this is what knocked him down, is that that glory that no one can look at is now Jesus on the throne in his full manifestation of his being. Glory. It's a trauma, a mysterium tremendum. 
Now Saul understands that there's one God with a son named Jesus. It leveled him. You know, before this moment, Saul thought he had God figured out. He did. He had God in a box. And pursuing God was about obeying the 613 commandments in the Torah. And each one of them was subpoints under it. That's what a Pharisee did. They told you how many steps you could walk on the Sabbath without breaking the law. They told you how to divide your spices and mints up uh, to give tithe. Everything was like to the letter of the law. And he had all this down. He had God in his box. If you just follow the rules, you'll be acceptable to God. That was his box. This blew up his box. You know what? I think most every person has a box, and God's in there somewhere. You go out on the streets of uh, Littleton. No, uh, Littleton's okay. Let's Let's go to Lakewood and Highlands Ranch. You go out in the street, and you ask, hey, do you believe in God? And if so, what's he like? A lot of people would still believe in God. And uh, what's he like? Well, I I would say something like this. I think God is like loving, and he's very accepting, and if you try hard to be a good person and love others, then God will accept you. That's God in a box. Now, you might ask him, well, where do you get that information? Like, did you read that somewhere? Sometimes it's, yeah, from a book or from a movement or from this famous person, whatever. We get it somewhere maybe, but not like from anywhere that claims to be of divine origin, like Scripture. But we just kind of, I think what most people want to do, and uh, we, we all do this even, even after we've been converted at times, but we just want to have this box and put God in there. And we say, well, I think God is a lot like what I am on my best days. I'm a loving person, I do good, I treat others well. So we, we say, God is a little bit, well, a lot, lot like me, but yet more consistent than I am. That's God. When conversion happens, your God box is tested. You encounter a living Jesus who says, You could never love someone and keep all the rules, whether they're Pharisee rules of Paul or whether there are rules from our God boxes. A a person who knows God has to be like this. Jesus blows that up and says, it is not about rules. It's not about what you do. It's about me and what I've come to give to you. So you encounter the living Jesus, the one who came, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, rose from the dead, gives all his gifts to us so that when we die, we will rise from the dead. We will have what Jesus has because Jesus gives us salvation. What happens when we are converted is we encounter the living Jesus, the God who is really there, and that changes everything. Which leads to the second part of every conversion. The first part is we encounter the living Jesus. We realize that God is there, that Jesus is alive, and he's breaking into our life. And then the second thing that we do that Saul did is we surrender 
to him. Now, when Saul is knocked down, he got like these cataracts because if he didn't get these cataracts, he, he would die if he had to look into the glory of Jesus. We would all die in this present condition if we looked at God directly right now. Jesus in his exalted state at the right hand of the Father. So there, he's blind. And imagine this. Like his conversion isn't sudden. Jesus doesn't say to him, pray the sinner's prayer right now and you'll be converted. No, this, there's like a process for Paul. He's blinded now. And he's, the text says he's led by the hand, 135 miles, led by the hand to Damascus. What is this blindness? What do you think God was doing with Saul? I've been thinking that what he's doing is he's saying, Paul, and it says Paul is so shook he can't even eat. So he takes everything out of his life and he says to Paul, Paul, I want you to really think about me right now. What else are you going to do? <laughs> I want you to think through who I am. I want you to think through what your life is. What's interesting is this conversion moment is told two more times in the book of Acts from the lips of Saul. He speaks it before a crowd, and he speaks it before a Roman ruler named King Agrippa. And in Acts 26, listen to a little detail that Paul adds while he's in this blindness. On one of these journeys, Paul is saying this, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon. King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw, he's addressing King Agrippa, I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, here's the addition. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. What in the world does that mean? Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goads. What's a goad? It's a shepherd's tool. It's a long stick with a pointy end. Why does a shepherd need a goad? Because sheep are like crazy stupid. <laughs> if you tell a sheep... The food's over there, which way will the sheep go? Over there. If you tell a sheep, it's dangerous over there, which way will the sheep go? I remember reading a story a few years ago about a hundreds and hundreds of sheep running, walking off a cliff in Australia, losing hundreds of sheep. Why? Well, because he did it. <laughs> she did it. What's a goad? Ouch, ouch. Jab, jab. There's danger that way, jab, jab, this way. There's food this way, jab, jab. A goad is something to get the sheep on the right path. So what does that mean when Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against, really, my jabs? What do you think those jabs were? I submit to you, I think the blindness, the fasting, the three days, Paul is absorbing all that's happened, and he saw Jesus sitting in heaven, all this, and what begins to jab, jab him, I would argue, is he's beginning to remember what it's like to have a different kind of relationship with God, what it's like to have a alien righteousness that comes not from what you do but from outside that someone else has done 
for you. I'm suggesting that one of the goads that began to poke Paul was when he saw Stephen die. Do you remember when Stephen died? Stones, because he preached Jesus, the Sanhedrin. Do you remember what he said? He said at the end of it, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm thinking, Paul's thinking, how does someone die with poise like that? How do you get that? And then do you remember what Stephen said just before he died? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. What? Where do you get a forgiving heart like that? Jab, jab. The second part of an encounter uh, with God, of a conversion, is receiving what the saving Jesus wants to give us, surrendering to him. That we cannot do enough good in our lives to make ourselves acceptable to God. We cannot save ourselves with our own self-salvation projects. No matter how good we think we are, jab, jab, you're on the wrong path. If anyone was sincere, if anyone lived a life of good works, it was the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 3, I'm not going to read it, but you can see how Paul said, he re recalls this conversion, he said, if anyone was faithful, I was. I was a Pharisee's Pharisee. I kept to the letter of the law. I lived a perfectly obedient life, all to gain God's favor. And God says, why are you kicking against the goads? It's not how it works. When you see Jesus, you then surrender and, give, and receive what he wants to give you. Forgiveness, eternal life, a new heart, a new life. You surrender to receive. Here's a diagnostic question. Uh, one of my favorite preachers is David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's with the Lord now. He was in Welsh. He preached in England. And he used to ask his congregation this diagnostic question. Are you ready? Here it is. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And if your answer to that question is anything like, well, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm doing all these good things. I sure hope so because I'm doing all these good things. If that's your answer, my friend, I'm sorry. You don't yet understand. Christianity is not about achieving. It's about receiving. Christianity is not about doing it's about what Jesus has done for us. And hearing that, you rest, you receive, you say, Jesus, I believe, I know who you are, God's son, and I receive your salvation, your forgiveness, your spirit into my life. Change my entire life like Saul's. Those are the two elements of conversion. Encounter, surrender.
So how do we know? How do we know if we've been converted? Well, there's clues in the text. There's little things that show how Paul's life changed. I'll walk through them really quickly. The first thing you see is like when God prepares Ananias, this, uh, this uh, Jewish believer in Damascus, to go and it gives him a vision and go find Paul. Do you remember in the text what it says Paul's doing? He's praying. He's like in the blindness, in the shock. The text says, and, and this is important, he's not saying his prayers as a Pharisee. He's praying. He has this intimacy now with God. This closeness. God for him is no longer a transaction. If I'm this good, you'll bless me. It's not a transactional business partnership anymore. I do this, God does this. No. He's now praying to a father. It's a family relationship. And then the first thing Paul does after he's baptized, as I hope some of you are going to be in a couple weeks, and the classes after today, if you want to be baptized to proclaim to the world that you have been converted and want to follow Jesus, the first thing he does after he's baptized, you know what he does? He goes and he preaches in Damascus. We've been saying the last few weeks, one of the things that I'm really impressed by the book of Acts is that how vocal and courageous believers were with their witness. They talked about Jesus and brought him up into conversations. And because they did that, they felt this huge closeness to God and they saw his power at work. We've been saying over the last few weeks, is your Christian life, if you've walked with Jesus, stale? Is it stale? Do you need like a recharge? Do you need something to help you feel closer to God and just see more of his power and grace? Talk to someone about Jesus. And you will be amazed at how close he is to you. How he's going to use the shows you've been watching and the books you've been reading and the food you've been made, anything to get you into a conversation with someone and God will come up. Intimacy. Do you have a relationship with God where you feel him as father, where you, where you feel a closeness to God? Not a fear, not a business relationship. Second, sacrifice. When Tim read it, remember he, he said to Ananias, when Ananias said, you want me to go do what? You want me to welcome this guy who's probably going to arrest me? What? And God says, he's my chosen instrument. And I will show him how much he must suffer. Now again, I want to be very clear here and not have you misunderstand me. I'm not saying when I say sacrifice that all of us are going to have to sacrifice like Paul sacrificed. Uh-uh. Paul was an apostle. I doubt any of us will have to suffer like he suffered. But there's a principle here. And the principle is this, that once you've been converted, your life no longer belongs to yourself. It belongs to him. And the rest of your life is lived thinking of ways to sacrifice and invest and follow the mission of sharing Jesus and demonstrating Jesus to the world. Your life becomes the duct tape word of Christianity, sacrifice. Jesus came to sacrifice. He demonstrated sacrifice to all of us. So we live sacrificially. So let me put this to you directly. Are you, are you converted? Well, here's one test. In your life, because you know Jesus, you are becoming more and more unselfish. 
unselfish. Or you could say it this way. More and more in your life as you walk with Jesus. Oh, this is going to really step on some toes. Got your, your feet ready? You are deciding to choose sacrifice over comfort. Third way we know if we've been converted is that we have a deep involvement and relationship in the church. You know that whole story about Ananias. Hear this, right? This is really good. There would be no Apostle Paul without Ananias. Ananias went and prayed over the murderer and his cataracts fell out. And he put his arms, laid hands on Saul. And he said, here's the two words that changed the world. My brother. I got chills when Tim read that. My brother, that, that changed the world. Saul, this murderer, was welcomed into the church. The rest of Paul's life, he spun that out in all his letters. He was in favor of the church. You and I both know that the church, especially in America, it's really hurting right now. And in fact, it's embarrassing, some of the stuff that's going on. But I want you to hang in there because Jesus is not giving up on his church. Neither should we. That's the bombshell at the end, right? Paul says, who are you, Lord? And I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Wait a minute. I'm not persecuting you. I was persecuting these people. I, I didn't persecute your brightness. Jesus is in such solidarity with his church that what happens to you happens to him. Think about that. Does he know what you're going through? He is so deeply connected to you that he knows and he's experienced what you're experiencing. But here's the thing. What he wants to do to comfort and to strengthen you is to send the Ananiases that's sitting right next to you and lay hands on you and say, Jesus is risen and I'm with you. We lay hands on one another. My friends, these pandemic years, it's a tough time for churches, all this. My heart to your heart is that part of conversion is that you are deeply, deeply involved in the church. We come now to the table of the Lord. Uh, if the servers, oh, oh but never mind, we got them. <laughs> what I want to do is pray, and then I'll share the words of institution and so after prayer, we'll take the elements together. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are full with this story of Paul's conversion. We've been encountering you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that like, like you're, you're wanting to break into their life right now, because they've never quite thought about you, Jesus, in this way. That you're the one who has everything we need to be saved. 
and to be given forgiveness and be given eternal life. And you're breaking into our lives right now. Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now or watching online, you're encountering Jesus. Break into our lives. Just to say his name is to say salvation. And I believe. So there's anyone in this room, Lord, right now, that needs you, may they encounter you right now. May they, if, you're, if you're here in this room and you want Jesus to come into your life, just say, Jesus, save me. I hear you. I see you. Save me. I want to follow you. You can do that right now. In this moment, we surrender to you. The rest of, rest of maybe some of us uh, you know, have followed Jesus for a long time, but it has been stale. It's been a rough few years. And maybe today you see the risen Jesus again and you surrender again. Like Martin Luther said, the Christian life is just repentance. Every day, repentance, repentance, realignment, get back in shape. Maybe some of us are just challenged today to get more deeply involved in the mission of sharing Jesus and demonstrating his love in the ministries of Jesus. Maybe, lastly, some of us need to recommit to the church, to being here more often, because there are certain parts of Jesus. Are you, I guess I'm starting to preach again, Jesus. But There are certain parts of you, Jesus, that we will not see in this time except in the faces of our sisters and brothers. So please move us to one another and help us to recommit to one another that we don't just go to church for ourselves. We go to be Ananias to Paul. And lastly, Lord, what we see in this conversion is that we should never give up on anybody. <laughs> Paul was the least likely person to be saved. I mean, he hated Jesus and all he stood for. He was an intellectual he was wealthy. He had every reason not to need a God. And yet you found him. No one is beyond your reach. No one can withstand your grace. So Lord, may we as a church never give up on anybody. May we as individual parents never give up on our children. May we never give up on our coworker who mocks us. May we never give up on our neighbor who wants nothing to do with our faith. Lord, we won't give up on anybody because of God, Jesus can save Saul. He can save everyone. So, our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. We'll open that. He said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the cup, supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen.